Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Well, hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, the podcast for compliance and risk professionals in the financial services industry. Uh, This is season six, episode 10, the final one of this season, and we'll be back in January. Um, I'm Randall Mickelson, North American Managing Editor for Regulatory Intelligence, and I'm here with Jason Wallace, a Senior Editor at Regulatory Intelligence and a veteran financial services professional. Jason, nice to have you. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, we're here today to talk about the marketing of investment advice and how a rule change by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has given investment advisors new ways to tell customers about their services. Uh, but along with that come new compliance obligations and new ways that SEC examiners will be scrutinizing advertising by investment advisors. So Jason, uh, can you tell us what's happening here and why it's a big deal for advisors and their customers? The SEC really has called the new marketing rule the hot topic of the year. So it's definitely something that's on the mind of all. The new rule went into effect on May 4th, 2021, and provided an 18-month transition period between the effective date and the compliance date. So the advisors must have complied on or before November 4th, 2022. The new rule is a principle-based approach to advisor advertising and replaces the old rule, which was drawn upon a web of no action letters and guidance that often resulted in confusion for many advisors. The SEC now permits the use of testimonials, which was a technique that was prohibited under the previous rule, endorsements, performance reporting, and third-party ratings, among others. Some of the no action letters that I mentioned were dated back over 30 years old. No action letters are now either nullified or incorporated into the new rule. Just kind of generally what it will require, it will require all investment advisors to reassess their policies and procedures, their current marketing materials, solicitation, marketing arrangements, and any other methods which they may communicate with current and prospective clients. Jason, you mentioned uh, that it took effect was it last May. Do you know, does the SEC have any idea what share of the market will be using these new rules and how it's been working out so far, if anybody's had any practice with it yet? Well, I think majority of firms will adopt it. It's either adopted or, or don't market. So I think it's going to be in use. Uh, and I think that many firms will adopt these new practices, uh, especially the most sought after aspect, which I'd consider uh, testimonials. It really gives advisors the ability to adopt some of these digital marketing techniques. Why is the testimonials and endorsements, why is that uh, an especially important part? Well, just to back up real quick, um, just so we know what a testimonial and uh, endorsement are. A testimonial is any statement of a client or investor's experience with the investment advisor or its advisory affiliates. And the difference is an endorsement is a statement by a person other than a client or investor. And the use of testimonials endorsements is really allowed, but it does require disclosures at time of dissemination, which include whether the person giving the testimonial or endorsement is a client, so their relationship, and whether the compensation has been provided by or on behalf of the advisor, and of course, a description of any material conflicts of interest. So it really gives uh, the advisor to align with many of the type of items that that the public is used to, for instance, uh, websites and apps that have the ability to allow those testimonials or endorsements to be shown or advertised. 
you know, we've seen some some celebrities get in trouble recently. The Kim Kardashian, I, I think some of the uh, mm-hmm. their quarterback Tom Brady, uh, I think Larry David have have been criticized or sued over their endorsements uh, related to the FTX cryptocurrency exchange. Are those sorts of challenges or, or, or legal difficulties, are they relevant to this discussion? And is that something investment advisors should keep in mind in how they use testimonials and endorsements? Yeah. I mean, it definitely is something now that, that can be used due to the adoption of these rules. A celebrity, for instance, would be considered an endorsement in most cases. So they may not be a client of the advisor. So in that sense, it can be done, but there must be disclosures and there is a a compensation de minimis. So for instance, if an advisor pays an individual or an endorser over $1,000 in a calendar year, then they must have a written agreement with that individual. It definitely can be done, but it does warrant these particular requirements of disclosure. What kind of disclosures are required? What, What do they need to say? Well, at first, they would have to disclose whether they are a client of the firm and primarily whether compensation has been provided. Okay. In many cases, that disclosure could be put at the end of a statement uh, or in a company, a flyer that an advisor may put out on a uh, monthly newsletter. You see, you'll see the uh, disclaimers in many particular items. But with the FTX case uh, or issue, there wasn't a registration requirement. So there really wasn't anything as far as disclosure required. You mentioned that the the new rule opens up a lot more use of social media by investment advisors in, in reaching clients. And, and, you know, we know from other consumer experiences that, that reviews and consumer reviews and that sort of thing uh, are an important or a, a big part of that social media commerce ecosystem. Um, how how can investment advisor use things like you know Yelp ratings or Google or or um, or other sorts of uh, third party you know ratings uh, under this new rule? They can use it, and fortunately, this rule permits the use, and it explicitly defines third party rankings. So they de- they define it as a rating or ranking of an investment provider provided by a person who is not a related person, and such person provides such ratings or rankings in the ordinary course of business. And that's a way for them to distinguish it between testimonial endorsements. It would be, okay. uh, yeah, an ordinary course of business. So if a magazine puts out a top 10 investment advisor or something like that. Then these requirements would apply, correct? In fact, the SEC has said it believes that approximately 50% of advisors will use third-party rankings in advertisements and that they will typically use one rating on an annual basis. So they're definitely being used, whether you use Yelp or, in many cases, items like Five Star Wealth Manager, Barron's Top Financial Advisors, those type of rankings. The, the biggest difference is, is really if it's solicited or unsolicited. So, for instance, Yelp rank, a rating would be in most cases, unsolicited. So they can use those, um, and they've been able to use those. The issue of disclosure and when this new rule really applies is when it becomes solicited. Tell us about the solicitation process. Right. So an advisor would be sending out a notice to their clients. Can you respond to this uh, particular survey by Barron's? Okay. Or can you write a review on this website? 
uh, and then I will advertise it. So then you get to the, the, to the requirements. So first of all, the, the advisor must have a reasonable basis to believe that the questionnaire survey used for the rating is structured to make it equally easy for a participant to provide favorable or unfavorable responses. And the advisor must perform due diligence and disclosure in related to that third-party ranking. So as far as due diligence, uh, the provision uh, can be satisfied by accessing the questionnaire or survey that was used in preparation of the rating. That's easier said than done in many cases. Mm, yeah, yeah. For instance, like a rating agency may be hesitant to produce it. However, a third-party rating provider may also provide some of it publicly, so they can use that as, as part of their due diligence process. Additionally, clear and prominent disclosure. And the disclosure would require the date of which the rating was given and the period of time of which the rating was based, the identity of the third party making the ranking, and of course, good old if compensation is provided. Okay. So again, we're getting to compensation is becoming a large part of this new rule, um, and it's just additional disclosure. You know, one thing uh, we see a lot of is businesses go on, going on social media saying, oh, you know, San Diego Magazine's rating top 10 wealth advisors uh, in the county, you know, please vote for us. Can an investment advisor do that or do they have to st- stand back and, and uh, just let the process roll out and then, and then uh, maybe promote the findings? Well, uh, fortunately, with this new rule, they can. In the past, they could market third-party ratings, but again, it was due. You were subject to all those no-action letters and finding all the particulars there. In this case, yes, you can. Um, If it's solicited, meaning that that advisor would like that individual or client to fill it out, then it would be solicited, so they'd be subject to these rules and these requirements. And you'd, you'd disclose that you had made that solicitation. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the more disclosure, the better in these cases. Really, the SEC just doesn't want to be surprised. As long as you lay it out there with proper disclosures and due diligence, you'll be fine. What about performance uh, advertising? Can they say, you know, our customers regularly, you know, outperform other other investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we give yield higher returns or whatever. Yeah. Performance uh, is allowed under the new rule. Again, that was subject to previously no action letters. Okay. Most notably, the Clover no action letter, which was quite a few years old, uh, but did did offer many of the same uh, allowances that the new rule does. The new rule covers items such as hypothetical performance, related performance, predecessor performance, and there's very uh, specific items that need to be hit before those items can be uh, advertised. But generally speaking, it will allow the inclusion of performance information uh, in advertisement. So for instance, the final rule will allow an advisor to advertise gross performance if the advisor provides or offers to promptly provide a schedule of fees and expenses deducted to calculate net performance. So this was a process that was only allowed previously for one-on-one presentations to wealthier institutional clients. So there it opened it up now that you can advertise. That's because, right, and Claire, that uh, gross performance can mischaracterize the actual returns a, a, an investor receives after fees and so forth. So, right. So they're looking for that to be clearly disclosed or, be, or calculatable by the investors, that, that, that the idea. 
Yes. So the returns aren't inflated in the sense um, yeah, yeah. that they could be construed as inflated without the net performance. And what about the use of like uh, all sort of hypothetical portfolios or, or back testing where, you know, if you'd applied this model to this investment over the last five years, here's how you turned out this year. Yeah, there are specific terms in the rule that lay out how you can submit or advertise hypothetical or related performance. There's particular rules, you know, that would have to be reviewed to ensure that. And again, this is something that was allowed in the past. However, now the new rule has has given it in one spot all within the, within the new rule. The rule is in effect. It took full effect in November, right? That that everybody has to comply with it. Now they start examinations, looking at how well firms are doing in compliance. What have we seen from the initial exams of, of firms that were abiding by the new rules or, or following, adhering to them? And you know, what should people expect? What should investment advisors expect the SEC to be looking for? Well, they can expect this to be a priority. And, and in September, the SEC released a risk alert highlighting its initial exam initiatives and areas of review. I would say a lot of that has probably um, been influenced by those initial firms that decided to comply in that 18th month window uh, before the compliance date. Mm-hmm. Just a side note, in the recent CCO outreach, SEC officials noted that the rule is easy to enforce. So I think that in so many ways of saying they're excited because they no longer have to deal with the nuances of the no action rules. Yeah, maybe just explain the no action bit rules or letters in that process for a minute. They're they're like informal policy guidance issued in in response to specific requests by a firm, right? A firm will specifically request, you know, the allowance of doing a particular activity based on the SEC looking at the circumstances, the existing rules, and then allow them essentially a pass to do that particular action. And then and other advisors can rely on that. The only thing is, is with those no action letters, they have to be followed to the T. Mm. And there are nuances to all of them. And there are no firms that are exactly the same as the one that received that no action letter. So it can be a little bit of a sticky situation. So in this case, now that they've removed most of them, we've got a pretty clear lay of the law as far as how uh, marketing will be handled and, and reviewed. And I think that's that reflects what the SEC officials were saying, that it's really, it's going to be an easier job for them. So they are going to be looking for these particular disclosures, the due diligence, and the records of all this. Um, and, and unlike cases in the past, there's going to be new, new types of uh, findings, exam findings, and, and enforcement. And they did, they did note that uh, there will be future risk alerts and possibly with the results of the initial exams. So that's probably something we can see mid-2023, I would hope. So it sounds like to keep up that a firm, instead of having to flip through a folder full of no action letters, you know, figuratively, mm-hmm. they can look at the rule, they can look at these um, subsequent risk alerts and exam reports and get a better feel for what the parameters of the rules are and, and what the allowed practices will be and expectations. Yes. And just to note uh, what they did highlight, they said that they will focus on the marketing rule policies, so policies and procedures, Mm -hmm. a firm's ability to substantiate the marketing statements, 
proper presentation of performance, and compliance with new books and records requirements. And those will be what they're looking at in the, in the new exams. And I can touch on those if you'd like. Yeah, that substantiation line in, in particular was one that <laughs> caught my eye. That sounds challenging. Um, what, what are the expectations there and how can a firm meet that? Sure. In kind of the SEC's own words, it states, although advisors are not required to review and approve advertisements, so that is something that was just a side note in the original rule. There was an area for pre-approval of advertisement that was since taken out in the final rule. But it says, although advisors are not required to review and approve advertisements prior to dissemination, they must be able to demonstrate that they have a reasonable belief for believing each material fact used in the advertisement at the time of such advertisements were made absent were made. So absent substantiation, the SEC will assume the advisors did not have a reasonable basis. That sounds like a lot of words, but in the sense, the SEC noted that one way you would be able to substantiate a material fact would be to create a written record at the same time the advertisement is being prepared and released. So in the final rule, there is no requirement for records of substantiation. However, if you as a firm believe that um, that material fact is in fact used in the, in, in the advertisement and true, then you are within the rule. However, in many cases, having additional records or documents along with those statements will you know, help when, time, when exam time comes. If you get challenged, you can support it with something. Yeah. Right. Essentially, it doesn't want people to make statements that are just completely outside the realm or just cannot be proved at all. Yeah. As I recall, in many cases, when I worked with firms, firms would say, we're the best in the valley. Well, what does that mean? And how are you the best in the valley? <laughs> so is that something that could pass muster? I mean, is that considered a material statement that would be subject um, to the substantiation requirement? I would say so, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. it would. And, and in many cases, I would... I would ask an advisor to to give a little more detail. Well, how are you the best? What are you the best at? Did someone tell you that, or is that just your feeling? Um, so then that that really can get to the bottom of then where how am I giving that information? Or how am I demonstrating it? And it sounds like a you know a bottom line gut check is a is a helpful thing. Mm -hmm. You know, just to is this going to pass the smile test with uh, anybody who knows me or whatever. Right. The smell test is one that was used often. So, Do you have a feel for how this has been working out? Have you, been, have you heard from industry sources or, or participants if they're adjusting to the new rule okay? And, and I know you've been in forums mm -hmm. about the rule and other SEC events. What, what do you gauge from questions? And I think that uh, firms are having a little bit of trouble with some of what they call the second tier type of advertisement, meaning testimonials and endorsements, ensuring that they are meeting the requirements. And then I think secondarily is the bigger the firm, the more important things like training are. You've got reps or individuals that are working outside the home that in some cases can create their own advertising, uh, may not follow the the particular rules for the supervision within the firm. So I think it, it's a little bit of a, of a mind shift from what it was previously, but I think firms uh, will get a handle on it pretty quick. And especially when exams are going to be focusing on this, I would assume that many exam request lists will ask a lot of these questions as far as what they're using. And additionally, on a side note, they have expanded the form ADV, 
which now requests information concerning a firm's marketing activity. So uh, you will have to disclose that coming up in the next annual amendment. So in most most cases, uh, firms have their fiscal year end in December. So in March of 2023, they will be submitting an annual amendment. And in that annual amendment, the SEC will ask questions about whether they use testimonials, whether they use endorsements, whether they are using uh, what type of marketing materials, performance advertising. So it's going to be out there. Okay. And, and it sounds like they need to bring that all quickly to hand, all their practices and, right. and documentation of that. Well, before we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to get into one question related to sort of news of the moment. And, and maybe this, this can uh, relate to marketing practices, but the collapse of the FTX uh, trading crypto firm has put crypto investments in the headlines. If you're my investment advisor and I tell you I want to put some of my money into digital assets like cryptocurrencies, how, how would you handle that request? And, and what compliance obligations would you as an investment advisor face? From my experience, investment advisors, really it depends how, as far as their advice, what how they feel about the outlook how comfortable they are with the actual asset class. Me personally, I would be slow to recommend the asset class. And from my experience, advisors do prefer registered instruments, especially a you know a traditional type investment advisor with you know non-institutional clients. With a fiduciary duty, you would have to be, you know, take into effect risk tolerance, financial goals, and then, you know, a fear of commingling uh, wouldn't sit well with me. Mm, mm. Would I would I feel that I'm making a, you know, something a fiduciary type? Am I fulfilling my fiduciary duty to a, a client? And then also uh, receiving payment based on that advice. You know, there just seems to be a lot of areas to look at, um, and, and I think many advisors are hesitant and may want to kind of wait it out. Yeah, I, I know you're not a, a lawyer and then your your advice can't extend to every circumstance, but um, I know if you were my personal investment advisor, those are the questions I'd be asking you. It's, it's definitely a fluid situation. So, <laughs> Well, Jason, thanks a lot. And thank you everyone for listening in. You, you can check the episode notes uh, with this podcast for links to articles that Jason and others have written about the marketing rule. And I'll also include a link for more information about Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. We'll look forward to rejoining you in January. We'll, when will we be back with a new season of Compliance Clarified? And in the meantime, we would very much appreciate it if you could take time to review the podcast and in particular let us know if you have any ideas for topics you'd like to hear discussed in future episodes of compliance clarified so again jason thank you very much thank you good day everybody compliance clarified a podcast by thomson reuters regulatory intelligence